Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future. Brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll hear from Pete Davis, president of Davis Capital Investment Ideas and a former top congressional staffer. During his 11 years on Capitol Hill, Pete worked in the House and Senate and for both Republicans and Democrats. He was an economist with the Joint Committee on Taxation. He was with the Senate Budget Committee and also the Senate Appropriations Committee. He worked and worked on uh, formulating and estimating many revenue bills over the years. And so we thought it would be a good idea to get his take on some of the ideas that are percolating their way through Congress as the Democrats try to find ways to pay for a reconciliation bill, a, a spending bill that could cost up to two trillion or more dollars. Pete and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Well, it's uh, Pete, it's not like there's nothing going on in the tax world right now. Um, I'm not even sure. It seems to every time I, I, I was going to say pick up the paper. I guess that dates me. Every time I uh, check online <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to tax news, things are changing by the minute. Um, but but uh, but before we get to some of the changing proposals uh, that are rattling around Congress, um, I just I just wanted to set the context for the discussion about revenues of the federal government. You know, just about what 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 do we collect? And uh, and, and in the current year, the year fiscal year just ended. Uh, are, are we trending up? Or are we trending down? And and what is the projection? You know, just for the next few years, if they don't do anything, what's our what's our revenue outlook right now? Uh, good question, Bill. Um, or Bob. Bob. <laughs> well, well, Bill, Bill Bixby was a very good actor and, uh, <laughs> and director and whatever. Let's let's compare where revenues were uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, and uh, federal revenue as a percentage of GDP in fiscal 19 was 17.2%. And then it dropped uh, in fiscal 20 to 16.3%. And now, uh, in the fiscal year just ended uh, a few days ago, last Friday, Treasury reported that total federal revenues were 18.0% of GDP. So we're back above where we were, uh, and we're headed higher, but nowhere near high enough to uh, stem massive deficits. We've got trillion-dollar deficits going forward, as far as the eye can see. Yeah, and just to uh, to put it in context on spending, I think spending was about thirty percent of GDP. So we had uh, th- this year quite a gap. That a lot of that was from uh, emergency COVID spending, but the uh, the revenue is uh, not keeping up with spending over the, the longer term. 
where do we get our revenue from? I mean, um, what are the breakdown of the categories? Yeah, if you look at individual income taxes, and, and I'm not including payroll taxes, uh, in fiscal 19, they were 8.3% 8, 8 of uh, GDP. In 20, they were 77 And then in the fiscal year just ended uh, September 30th, they were 9.1%. And, you know, the headlines lately have been, well, gee, you know, corporate taxes have jumped. Well, guess what? In fiscal 19, they were 1.1% of GDP, which is almost nothing. Okay. Uh, and there were like 30 multi-billion dollar or, or trillion dollar corporations that paid zero tax. That hasn't changed. In fiscal 20, corporate was 1.0. And now in the fiscal year just ended, it, it was 1.7%, but it's still minuscule. Yeah, so relative. I, go ahead, Jory. No, as I say, what I hear you saying, Pete, is is over over half of our revenues we collect from the individual income tax, right? The corporate income tax piece is actually very small uh, exactly. portion of our federal budget. Got it. And payroll taxes are the next biggest chunk. Right, but those go to Social Security and and Medicare, sure, right. right? They're they're right. not you know general revenues that we can use to fund, for example, transportation or other social safety net spending, right? That, that's true, but we will have to bail out Social Security sometime in the next decade. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We'll, we'll need more of that uh, general revenue. Um, all right, so that's that's kind of where we are. Now there's a, a big bill uh, making its way through Congress, uh, sometimes referred to as a reconciliation bill or sometimes referred to as a build back better or a social spending bill, however you want to describe it. Uh, and the number that we're hearing is that the spending, what, what they're planning to do is get a spending package together that's roughly $2 trillion, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, but that's the number that is kind of floating out there, which is down from about 3.5 trillion that they were talking about a few months ago. So, and the President Biden has said he wants to make this revenue neutral. I mean, not revenue, uh, deficit neutral. It's really gone out of his way to say, this is not gonna add one dime, you know, to the deficit or the debt, which uh, makes it a heavy uh, burden on the Democratic uh, members of Congress to, to come up with a funding package for this, uh, you've you've said, Pete, that the um, you know just to begin with, that two trillion dollars spending target is probably uh, in, and, and probably understates what's likely to be passed. It should be uh, if everything is made permanent, it's actually a little over four trillion, doubles the size. And one of the tricks, the budget gimmicks, is to make things temporary, just for a mm -hmm. few years, and then guess what? Congress always, once they've given away money, Congress always extends those. Yeah, I would find it very uh, difficult to, to believe that you'd put in a new benefit that people get used to and then uh, dial it back. So that means that if they're gonna really be serious, they're gonna have to be looking at more of a $4 trillion uh, revenue, revenue package. Um, it just uh, in general, um, and this has been changing <laughs> rapidly, but how are they planning to get this $2 trillion? In revenue? Yeah, in revenue. Well, 
the original plan was to adopt many of President Biden's proposals, you know, to raise the top marginal rates and do all sorts of other uh, ways of raising revenue, most of which have fallen by the wayside. Uh, Senator Sinema refused to countenance any uh, increases in the corporate or individual top tax rates. So, you know, there goes, there goes half a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe out of the 2 trillion, if you believe 2 trillion or 4 trillion, maybe they could come up with half a trillion, but they're not even going to come up with a trillion. And because what's left is not much. And about half of what's left, say they did half a trillion, about half, half of it is increased IRS enforcement. <laughs> we've, we've, started, we've started the IRS for the last decade. We've cut their budget by a little over 20%. We've cut their enforcement personnel by more than that. And guess what? It takes years to train an auditor at the IRS. So you're not going to get all this money that's being estimated very quickly. You also have to wonder about, <clears throat> you know, the, one of the important things the IRS does is process your tax return and send you your refund when you are due a refund. I know that we have lots of people that are still waiting for their 2020 tax year refund. And when you contribute new resources to the IRS, is Congress going to say, focus the, your efforts on getting refunds out to individuals or, you know, going after big tax cheats. You know, I think the, the priorities there and the, and the are, are not necessarily going to be towards getting new revenue and more towards processing tax returns that are due refunds. That's an excellent point, Tori. Uh, the Senate Appropriations Committee a couple, few weeks ago put out the appropriations bill for the mm-hmm. IRS, and that looks like it's going to be a number fairly close to the increase that uh, President Biden proposed. And you're right you know, several hundred uh, uh, million dollars uh, for helping taxpayers and a, a few hundred more for enforcement, but a lot less. Mm-hmm. So we've initially gone from a proposal that looked like we were gonna pay for this, this Build Back Better agenda with higher taxes on corporations, uh, higher taxes on multinationals that, that shift profits overseas, higher taxes on high net worth individuals. And we've, we've thrown all that away uh, because we've got two senators that don't like those proposals, and now Democrats are moving towards other, perhaps less tested, uh, more concentrated proposals. Um, we've heard recently things about uh, Wyden's billionaire income tax, um, maybe a new global minimum uh, income tax for multinationals, um, a minimum domestic corporate tax. What 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 do you see percolating, and what do you see as uh, what has legs and what doesn't have legs? Well, this is a good news, bad news story. Um, mm-hmm. The good news is that uh, there has been surprising amount of agreement uh, among 180 odd nations in the world to put a 15% uh, global minimum tax on, on corporate book income. Um, it's going to take a while to implement. Uh, there's lots of issues about all well, the accounting issues and so on. But the bottom line is eventually we'll get there. And if all our trading partners adopt this, that's a big deal. And it helps. Um, a lot of the revenue, like 
you know, for Google and Facebook is going to go to Europe and India and China and not to the U.S., we'll get some. Um, so that's the good news. Um, um, the bad news is that, you know, Mr. Wyden's proposal just cannot be implemented. Uh, he would do what's calling mark to market, where you would somehow get an audit, and I don't know how you do this even, of all the billionaires and find out how much appreciation in stock they own and, and hard to value assets and small firms and so on, and, and, and tax that every year, whether or not they'd actually sold them and realized any, any cash. And so, you know, this idea has been around for a long time. I worked on it back in the 70s. And guess what? There's just not the votes to pass. Well, it seems like it would be very, very difficult to implement. I mean, you you went through what would be involved here, and and of course, it's changing by the by the day. But the the way I understand it is like a two tiered test or something. That if you had a hundred million dollars worth of income for three years in a row, you'd pay this extra tax, you'd, you'd have to, you know, have your assets evaluated for their growth. And I, I, I seems to me that anybody worth their salt at that level could manipulate their income to not show a hundred million dollar gain their income for three years in a row. I mean, that that's kind of like one thing, but the, the other thing is the valuation of those hard to value assets. Um, I mean, wouldn't there be a, a, a lot of a, a new cottage industry of tax evasion? Hey, it's existed for years. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, that's just, why I said just, just just read the ProPublica article from uh, a, a few months ago, where they somehow got a big leak out of the IRS on on all the money that's escaping tax from billionaires and. Guess what? Those billionaires spend a lot of money getting the very best tax advice, and they're evading tax uh, legally. Yeah. Mostly, mostly. Some of them are moving it down to tax havens and so on, and that's illegal. But, but most of it's legal evasion. And mm -hmm. you know, if you've got if if you're Bill Gates with a Van Gogh on the wall that you bought, you know, twenty years ago, nobody knows what it's worth. Right. So setting aside for a moment, the implementation issues with this wealth tax, I think one of the reasons why Democrats have been quick to jump onto it is, you know, as a talking point, you're taxing super high net wealth individuals, super wealthy, wealthy people, which means not me. Um, this, this tax supposedly affects only about 700 taxpayers, um, which when you think about tax increases translating into votes, that means they're only making 700 households really, really angry, right? Instead of hundreds of thousands of, of potential voters. So you can understand the political appeal of this, setting aside the actual policy and, and the revenue uh, capabilities and the implementation issues. Politically, you can understand this. But I'm curious about another political angle, which is, is it wise um, is it a way to create uh, enduring policy by siloing 
the cost of a major expansion in, in, in federal entitlement spending, siloing the cost among a very narrow set of individuals. I mean, in general, you know, we, we apply a broad-based income tax that, that generates revenue for the treasury, which surprised, supports broad-based public policy programs by and large, okay? Here, we're talking about a massive expansion of, of, of entitlement spending, but we're only asking a very, very tiny, narrow portion of the population, one that is capable of shifting income elsewhere to pay for that program. Is that a well-designed public policy program? Not at all. Mm -hmm. And every year I go out to Seattle and meet with some of the top tax people for the 30 billionaires that live around there. They're very well represented. Mm -hmm. They understand exactly how to evade these narrowly drawn provisions. And they don't live off their income. They live off their wealth. They, can, they, they don't need income for years. You know, that's why a lot of them don't pay any tax. And so, okay, so you try and put on a wealth tax, but you can't make it work. So it's, it's, it's a, a conundrum. I mean, look, I believe in the principles of taxation. One of the principles is, and this has been studied over and over again by the best economists in the world, broad-based low rate. Mm -hmm. When you have a narrow base and a high rate, you get all kinds of bad consequences. And there's one other quick point. I'm one of the few economists who ever spent a lot of time actually in with the lawyers drafting tax laws. And boy, you think you can define exactly who this tax is going on? And guess what? A few years later, there's some horror story on the front page of the Times or the Post about how you hit some poor farmer who had, was land rich and cash poor, and they had to sell the farm to pay the tax. Mm -hmm. Boy, elected officials hate those headlines. Mm -hmm. And when, when a young economist like me comes along and tells them some great idea to raise revenue, all they're thinking is, this kid's going to get me unelected. <laughs> I guess that's why you have things like uh, pledges not to raise taxes on anybody earning less than uh, 400,000. And, you know, just to you know, reiterate Tory's point, that, that just strikes me as a, as a promise that's inconsistent with a simultaneous promise to broadly expand the uh, social safety net and uh, uh, just the role of the federal government. Uh, I mean, we have the, the, the way they do it in Europe is with a value added tax. So, I mean, everybody is paying for it. There are not uh, wealth taxes, as you might expect in Europe. Apparently, they were and they've been repealed. But I mean, the way to, to go about this, if you really want a big expansion, is to, as you said, broaden the base or, you know, you have to have some sort of tax that's going to bring in lots of money from everybody. If, if we could uh, adopt a broad-based, well-designed VAT, that would be fine. Mm -hmm. I, f I formulated Al Oman's VAT back in 79, and it became really clear after we provided exemptions for food, housing, medical, farmers, just on and on, it was not going to be well-designed. Ah. And, and I tried to talk them out of it. And, you know, 
guess what? He uh, ended up uh, not getting reelected. And it was not necessarily because of the VAT proposal. It was because President Carter threw in the towel at 7.30 Eastern and a lot of people in Oregon turned around and didn't vote. But but still, it didn't help. But yeah, that was... But but let's bygones be bygones. <laughs> uh, you're, you, we're going to take our first break here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Pete Davis, president of Davis Capital Investment Ideas and a top Washington expert on tax policy. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Pete Davis, president of Davis Capital Investment Ideas and a top Washington expert on tax policy. Um, when we left off, uh, Tori, we were, we were talking a little bit about uh, having a, a, a narrow tax base and a, and a broad spending base. <laughs> uh, go ahead and finish up that, uh, that conversation. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think it's worthwhile pointing out that, I mean, Demo Democrats are trying to create enduring pro programs, right? And you take a look at a program like Social Security, which we all hold up as a paragon of, of universality and popularity, right? And the reason why is because everybody pays into Social Security and everybody gets a benefit from Social Security. Now, you can argue about you know, the progressiveness and, and things like that, but the, 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 the truth is everybody pays in everybody benefits. And so it's really hard to make changes in social security. And, and it's why it continues to exist is because it is popular with everyone. And I wonder if Democrats are making a mistake by creating, trying to create enduring programs that don't have that sort of universal nature and that universal and that everybody is paying into it. You know, they're siloing this, the, the pay fors into this very narrow tax base. And it's a tax base that is easily movable uh, beyond tax, U.S. tax borders, um, but then you know they're also creating benefits that uh, you know are also not universal. So um, I, I just I, I'm wondering if they're being short-sighted in creating these big programs and on a on a very narrow tax base. And I think it's 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 setting these programs up for risk in the future, and they're being short-sighted in doing this. Tori, you're making a great point. All I would say is that when you have elected officials who, whose only care in the world is the next election, you end up with short-sighted policies. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this in the business world with CEOs who come in and only care about the next earnings report too. So short-termism leads to problems. Right. Um, yeah, I really uh, worry about that. There, there, there are two other issues that uh, kind of, well, one is definitely on the table. One is just still a little bit uh, out in the ether there, but uh, maybe needed. When, when you talk about a, a broader based uh, tax, one idea that gets support in some form or another from economists on, on both sides is a carbon tax. Now they may differ on the details about how that should be done, but um, that seems to be a more realistic prospect for a broader base tax than a, than a VAT. 
Um, Pete, could you talk a little bit about the the benefits and prospects of a of a carbon tax? Sure. Um, I need to confess that I formulated two carbon taxes for uh, Senate Finance Chair uh, Bob Dole in the late 70s uh, that were never public. And uh, a well-crafted carbon tax that our trading partners adopted would be a great way to avert some of the worst consequences of climate change. Uh, however, uh, I'm pretty cynical and I don't see any way uh, that a well-crafted carbon tax would come out of this Congress and the votes certainly aren't there. Um, but any, any economist, almost every economist of every persuasion believes this is the right way to go. And the problem is when you formulate one, um, you, you end up having to make all sorts of exemptions. So what about intermediate products at, at DuPont chemical plant that you know, are on their way to, to making plastic? Uh, you know, and okay, you gotta, you gotta exempt that. And then you start exempting farmers and, and the list just goes on and on and you end up with a tax that's not much help to the climate and is unfair and unpopular and ends up being repealed or never adopted in the first place. Yeah, that uh, it, it, politics is for all these things. It seems that politics, uh, political implementation gets in the way of efficient revenue um, collection. <laughs> well, you want you want taxes to be supported by the populace. So, you know, the really tough job that most elected officials have is sort of that balancing act. You know, between a well-designed tax and one that they can sell to the public. What about uh, the other idea that is very much on the table is uh, trying to do a better job of collecting taxes that are actually owed? The tax gap is clearly hundreds of billions of dollars, but we have no idea how many. Um, Congress got really upset with the tough audits that were done a decade ago called the TCMP audits. that gave us a really good look at what the tax gap was. Um, and so they ended that program. And so we've had some efforts most recently in 2013 and 2014, saying that it was a little over $400 billion. And then a few months ago, uh, IRS Commissioner uh, Rosati at a hearing said, uh, well, it's about a trillion dollars, but you know, everybody's guessing, we have no idea. Um, so that's the first problem. Uh, the second problem is that um, there's a cash economy. Okay, you pay your plumber or your maid in cash. It never goes into a bank account. And it's really hard unless you do tough audits to estimate how much that is. Um, the other problem is that you have a lot of complicated business arrangements, you know, partnerships and, and, and so on that you, you don't have good information reporting, okay? You know, when, when a worker gets a W-2, uh, they, they get uh, a statement that the IRS gets and that money is reported and it's taxed. But if you're getting non-wage income, um, you may or may not get 
a quote unquote 1099 form telling you how much that was. And so the, the real issue is, are we gonna clamp down on the partnerships and, and, and complicated business arrangements that hide income and move it overseas even? And you know, sometimes the IRS does and sometimes they don't. It's, it's a very difficult and complicated problem. The money should be put in there to enforce that. But like I say, over the last decade, the Congress has cut those budgets, IRS budget enforcement budgets a lot. I think the, the IRS is in a, a really uh, rock and a hard place right now. On one hand, you've got the, the release of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of leaking of sensitive taxpayer information from the IRS, which makes Congress you know, very reluctant to uh, provide a, a, a bigger budget to the IRS. But on the other hand, you can look at those, those leaked documents and say, see how much more money we could be collecting if the IRS had more agents and more enforcement uh, resources. So it's, it's sort of a, a, a rock and a hard place there. You, know, you try and demonstrate, hey, this is what we could achieve if we had the muscle. On the other hand, it makes lawmakers reluctant to provide you know, more, more resources to the IRS if they can't keep sensitive private taxpayer data private, right? It's really rare. I mean, this, this leak, the ProPublica leak is the first leak I've ever heard of. I know a lot of people at the IRS. Every single one of them is incredibly careful mm -hmm. never to leak anything, talk about anything, or even express a political opinion ever. And so they deserve a lot of credit. One other quick point. Every year we load more work on the IRS without giving them the money to carry it out. Right, right. During the pandemic, they're putting out trillions of dollars of checks to, you know, people to get them through the pandemic. Oh, right. okay, you know, the IRS will just, you know, use their computers. Well, guess what? There's millions of people still waiting for some of those checks because they didn't file returns last year or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and guess what? Starting uh, last July, every month, there are child credit mm -hmm. uh, checks going out to, I forget, 35 million families. So it's like, wow, <laughs> we've loaded all of this on the IRS. And by the way, have you been in an IRS office lately, uh, especially at the uh, you know, national headquarters here? Uh, They've got antiquated equipment. Yeah. Their computers are really old. Right, right. They're still using floppy disks, I heard, the little five-inch <laughs> floppy disks. There's so. one good aspect to this. All the hackers can't get into the IRS very easily <laughs> because in some cases, they're still using COBOL. Yeah. Gosh. Oh. That's uh, that's uh, I guess one one uh, positive thing to, to think about. The, uh, the IRS can't crack down or nobody can crack, uh, can, can hack them because uh, they're using abacus. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, it does seem to me that two, two of our big, uh, two of the things that the Democrats are most leaning on have this suffer from that same problem, which is closing the tax gap. And, and then if we do go to some sort of wealth tax, you have all those issues that you mentioned before about evaluating uh, hard to value assets and trying to then tax them with the limited resources the, the IRS has. Um, 
Okay, we're going to take our second break. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Pete Davis, a Washington expert on tax policy. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with Pete Davis, president of Davis Capital Investment Ideas and a top expert in Washington on tax policy. Uh, there's something in the tax code that's referred to as SALT. And uh, it's state and local tax deduction, basically what you can uh, deduct for what you pay locally. And in the in the 2017 tax bill, they put a cap on that deduction. And a lot of people in high income states, uh, high you know states with high income taxes in their uh, uh, states, uh, are primarily hit by this because it limits the extent of their deductions against their federal liabilities. And so there's a, a move to repeal that SALT cap. Um, Pete, uh, you want to talk about the pros and cons of that? Well, first of all, it seems like the votes are there on a temporary basis to, if they get a reconciliation bill through, uh, which is unclear, uh, to either raise the cap a bit or suspend it for a year or whatever. We, we don't know yet. We'll hopefully find out in the next week. I'm a believer in the principles of taxation. You accurately measure income. You actually, you, you measure deductible expenses accurately, and then you apply tax rates to the net. And you don't want to have a cap like that. I'd much rather have a higher top marginal rate, but the votes aren't there for that. So, and, you know, it's not good for the tax system to have provisions which are viewed as totally politically motivated, you know, to hit Democrats in high tax states like New York and New Jersey and California and have other provisions that are aimed at Republican states, you know, like Florida, you know, I just don't like that. It's bad tax policy. It's taxpayers hate it. Um, you know, we should get back to better tax system. Yeah, the irony of this one uh, particular thing is that putting it in the Democrats reconciliation bill would provide a, a tax benefit for the very wealthy people uh, that they would, that they're, on the other hand, wanting to raise their taxes on. So it's been kind of a, a, a tough one to explain, but they, there's members that really want that in there. And Well, when uh, you formulate tax bills like I had for many years, you, you can't do anything, even raising the standard deduction, uh, without having winners and losers. Mm -hmm. So everything you do as winners and losers, and hopefully they're mostly winners and fewer losers, but it's, it's not easy. So Pete, I wanted to ask you a question. A lot of the discussion we've had today has been focusing on uh, ways to raise uh, new revenue through the tax code, but something that we also do in the tax code is spend 
through the tax code through things that we call tax expenditures. These are uh, deductions and credits and things like that, that that tend to go along with certain certain behaviors. Um, what I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, what do you think about uh, uh, addressing tax expenditures as a way to, to raise revenue for some of the, 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 the Democrats' agenda? And are there any sort of egregious uh, expenditures or loopholes out there that, that, that you think Democrats ought to be looking at or that actually any Congress should be looking at, not necessarily Democrats, but just, you know, egregious examples uh, that, that you think need to be addressed? The answer is a big yes. Um, <laughs> there are egregious examples everywhere I go in the mm -hmm. world, not just in the US. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, the term tax expenditures was created by a Harvard law professor named Stan Surrey, who I actually met. Uh, he, he promulgated this back in the mid sixties and it's actually written into the budget act, which is still present law. And every year the budget committees are required by law to hold a hearing about all these bad loopholes. Uh, but you can't call them loopholes. You have a euphemism, tax expenditures. And, you know, it is a descriptive term. Uh, Congress really loves to help electric vehicles or to help this or to help that, help farmers. And that's why everywhere I go, I, I see loopholes. And, and I mean, when I think of the tax system, I think of this big swimming pool with all of these pipes that are draining all the water out of it. <laughs> and the revenue that's left is maybe six inches of water. <laughs> and I mean, some of these are so egregious that it just, it, it just is beyond description. There was an article a month ago in the Washington Post about a yacht club down in, near Miami, where if your yacht is valued at less than, I forget, $10 million or something, you can't even get in, you know, to gas up. <laughs> and, and guess what? They are taking advantage of, of a loophole that was created in 20, at the end of 2017 in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act called Opportunity Zones. And the idea is that an opportunity zone is an area where, you know, it's like a rundown industrial area and, and you're going to advantage the workers and low-income people who are going to get the jobs. And, and yet this, some sharp tax lawyer has, has found a way to get this, that, that uh, tax benefit for this yacht club. And, and the list just goes on. I mean, you know, we could do this show for another few hours mm -hmm. and, and I would not run out of examples. I mean, you know, th there's dozens of loopholes for real estate. Mm -hmm. um, installment sales on, on commercial buildings where you never pay tax. You just kind of roll over one building to the next. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the profit that you made on that building is never taxed. And, it, you know, there's so many areas, uh, you know, for farmers and real estate. And, and you know, it, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, how could I leave out oil and gas? I mean, you know. yeah, I guess. And, well, and so I, I mean, some of them are quite popular with people like the home mortgage deduction is considered sure. a tax expenditure. And that's, uh, um, you know, quite popular. What, so what about what about renters? Yeah, get, who get nothing. Yeah. And pay full and pay full. So, you know, what? back when 
all the way through the 70s and 80s when I was running the tax model at Joint Committee, every year there were several members of Congress in both houses who had asked me because they couldn't, they didn't have the votes to get rid of the home mortgage deduction, which mostly helps better off people like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to create a credit for renters to balance it out. So in other words, okay, here's a loophole we can't get rid of, but let's let's get some more fairness by creating a loophole for low income people. And there's deductibility of, um, um... Or the non-treatment of uh, uh, health uh, benefits is is income is is another one that yeah. people don't employer paid yeah health and that's that's yeah. huge are dis disallowed from income yeah so you they don't yeah. they're not counted as income so you don't pay taxes on that so and we take that as a sacred right now but it was just kind of like a uh, something that happened coming out of World War II mm-hmm. but that's another tax expenditure that benefits your higher. Sure more wealthy individuals, because it's your CEOs uh, that have these enormous, very generous executive compensation packages, including you know, Mercedes-style healthcare programs. The, the fact that we don't uh, tax uh, benefits, like healthcare benefits, mm-hmm. it, was, it was an administrative decision by a relatively low level IRS official in the in, in, in middle of World War II. And yeah. there was no, <laughs> There was no, you know, congressional oversight or anything, and it's it's probably one of the biggest loopholes, you know, along with home mortgage insurance in the whole tax code. And by the way, uh, Senator Grassley held a hearing uh, uh, last year about how some big public hospitals that don't get taxed at all and mm-hmm. even have property tax exemptions, the whole reason for that was they were going to be treating the poor, and he was. He was holding up certain hospitals that that weren't treating the poor and were refusing them entry. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's that. Well, hey, tax loopholes are inefficient, unfair, unfair, and really hard to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And they do tend to benefit. They do tend to benefit more upper income people that are shielding or you know take you know trying to not so much hide their income but prevent it from being taxed. Amen. You know, we do have a progressive tax system. So yes, the top 1% pays something like, I forget, 22% of the income tax. But, you know, so so when you have a new deduction or an expanded deduction, it's going to benefit the well-off. So let's 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 come full circle here and and get back to the the Democrats' Build Back Better agenda, the the reconciliation bill that's moving through the Senate, and sort of wrap this up here. We've talked about all these different uh, revenue sources, um, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to try and put forward a bill that spends anywhere between one and a half to two point two trillion dollars. Uh, although we recognize that that's really not the full cost of the bill, it'll be more. Um, the reconciliation instructions that were given to the committees allow them to uh, not offset about one point seven five trillion dollars of that bill. Um, so do you think that Democrats are going to come up with uh, any revenue offsets whatsoever, or are they just going to fall back on the reconciliation instructions that allow them to write legislation that would increase the deficit by almost $2 trillion over the next 10 years? When you've got 50 Republicans in the Senate who will vote against that bill, all it takes is one Democrat to kill the whole bill. Mm-hmm. And there appear to be two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Senators, uh, 
uh, cinema and uh, uh, from West Virginia. Uh, mansion. Mansion. So uh, you're going to have maybe half a trillion dollars and most of that's going to be IRS enforcement. And maybe they, they come up with a few things to uh, raise some revenue, but there's going to be some tax cuts in there too. Mm -hmm. like, like raising the cap on the salt uh, cap and so on. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, we always kid people about it, uh, smoke and mirrors. So the know. chances of this thing being fully offset are probably close to zero. Yeah, it's not going to be offset. We're going to, we're going to, you know, the, the taxpayers are going to run up more debt to pay mm -hmm. for this bill. I'm afraid that is the bottom line that the, Projected costs will probably be understated, and the projected revenues will probably be understated, even to fund the understated spending. <laughs> so, um, I think that uh, that's not a very optimistic way to end things, but uh, but we'll we'll keep monitoring this, uh, Pete, and I hope you keep pushing your ideas for a carbon tax and a vat and maybe <laughs> maybe someday one of them will come to pass and simplifying the tax code <laughs> yeah yeah i hope I well that's <laughs> that's all we have time for this week i want to thank uh, pete davis for his uh, insights into washington's ongoing tax debate and thanks also as always to tori gorman for joining me in today's discussion and thanks to you for tuning in this is bob bixby i'll be back next week with another edition of facing the future